Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. Come inside, the show's about to start. Guaranteed to blow your head apart. This is the Shannon Smith Shooting Podcast. Gas it up. Welcome back, guys, to the Shannon Smith Shooting Show Podcast. Thanks for joining me, as always. Appreciate everybody listening. I continue to get good feedback out on the range from folks who listen to the podcast, and I certainly appreciate it. Uh, I've got a lot to cover on this episode. I'm back in the home studio, so it's nighttime, and hopefully the uh, frogs chirping down by the lake aren't aren't too loud. As the social media director for Shannon Smith Shooting and Universal Shooting Academy, you would think I'd know that people could make posts to your Facebook but if they're not a friend or some shit, you don't see it. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, found a bunch of posts that I never saw before. I'm going to try to start getting back to those uh, as I can. One of them, though, was on the cigar selection. Um, he's asking about the Perdomo. So we're having a, a Perdomo Lot 23 Natural is kind of my go-to. It's a little weak because I'm a weak guy. Not as uh, Not as strong as the Maduros, but... That's the uh, the ones I like. Got a good draw and pretty consistent. Uh, they're pretty consistent cigar. I very, very rarely have a bad one. I uh, just wanted to cover that. That was one of the, the Facebook posts. It's a lot we're going to get into today. Some some uh, self-defense carry gun stuff. Going to recap the Ipsic Nationals from a uh, two-hat approach. And then a couple of questions. If I uh, have time, we don't run don't run too long. There's another stand your ground case in Florida. I don't. I'm not going to get into politics on this podcast, and I never will. But I consider this kind of a falling in line with uh, self defense and concealed carry aspect as well. So I'm sure you've seen on the news this dude McLaughlin was was uh, killed by this dude Draga or Draca uh, in a parking lot, and uh, been super busy with Ipsic Nationals, and had a little quickie vacay in there as well. Uh, so I haven't seen a lot of news stories on it, but I have read some articles and seen some videos online. And uh, if you know, in my opinion, it falls in line with uh, a lot of famous cases, all of which, of course, have been in Florida. But you know, you'll never find a more a more pro pro two A guy than me, and a, and a more pro carry guy than me. You know, I I see the second amendment as my carry permit, and I don't need a a license or your permission or a class or a standard. So, you know, that that's where I stand on that. And I'm also a fan of the stand your ground law. And, you know, in, in principle, I think it's a, it's a good standard. You, you shouldn't have to run away. And that what came as an extension of what Florida initially had, which was the Castle Doctrine, which uh, said you didn't have to, to make an attempt to retreat from your home. And then they ended up expanding that to vehicles and then your, your personal space. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a fan of that law. I do, however, think that law is abused by uh, attorneys in some cases trying to get their their client off, and probably in some cases the uh, the, the client themselves from from the beginning. And and that's what happened here too. Uh, you know, if you look at if you look at this case, the the guy's bitching because some ladies parked in a handicapped spot in this relatively empty parking lot of a gas station, convenience store, or something or other. Um, argue, or, or I guess theoretically, you know, yelling or, or bitching to the lady uh, from outside. 
uh, her car. Her husband comes out, uh, presumably heard this going on and didn't like some dude yelling at his wife and basically, you know, floor checks the dude, you know, pushes him in the in the chest, knocking him down. And the guy pulls a gun and smokes the guy. So, again, I'm not going to get into the the uh, diagnostics of the video, but it appeared uh, the McLaughlin dude, you know, was, was not further aggressing. He'd backed off at that point, especially when the Drake dude started to pull the gun. Uh, but he shoots anyway. So if you remember a couple of years ago, there was another case in Florida, the Curtis Reeves deal in a, in a theater. This guy was a Tampa cop, retired, older dude. Um, guy in front of him is texting, I guess, during the previews or something, and he says something to him about it. They get in a verbal altercation. The Reeves guy leaves the theater, and it's, I guess, up for debate whether he went to retrieve a gun or complain to the manager or whatever, but he comes back in. The verbal, verbal altercation escalates. Uh, the guy throws a bag of popcorn at Reeves, and Reeves pulls a gun and smokes him. And then, of course, everybody knows the Trayvon Martin-Zimmerman deal. So Trayvon's bebopping through the neighborhood. Zimmerman's Mr. Hero, uh, mall cop on patrol, and goes up, confronts him. They get in a fight. <clears throat> at that point, Zimmerman probably was... <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. At that point, Zimmerman probably was in fear for his life and uh, draws a gun and smokes him. And so my, my position in all these is, and, and this is what I would, you know, I, I teach to my students and I would recommend to you as a concealed carry holder. In, in none of these cases, this is obviously my opinion, but in none of these cases would these dudes have been so badass to confront the other guy had they not been carrying a gun. You know, certainly the theater case, Older guy versus younger dude. Probably got an attitude. I used to be a cop. Who are you to text in front of me? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, certainly the Zimmerman case. I mean, and Trayvon was no uh, no choir boy. No altar boy for sure. But, you know, you tell me Zimmerman, you know, out of shape, fat dude's going to approach a, a young, fit-looking kid at nighttime and, and then with no backup. Uh, if he wasn't carrying a gun. And then the Drake and McLaughlin deal, probably the same thing. You know, and, and even if even if it wasn't that, why are you going to go up and accost somebody for parking in a handicapped spot? Who the hell are you? You know, he's not the cops. He's not the, the parking lot police. Just go about your daily business. If it bothers you that much, call the police. Go inside, complain to the manager. You know, do something else. It's it's not your place to to play cop. If, if you ain't out there being a cop. And all the more while, uh, because you're carrying a gun. And again, I, I've, I've told this story to my students uh, in, in every concealed carry type or uh, even the CCW courses I used to teach uh, in every class. It's, I've been carrying a gun pretty much every day since I was legally able, uh, with very few exceptions. And... You know, I'm, a, I'm an old family guy now. I don't go out and do anything in fun anymore anyway. But but even when I was younger, when I was 21, 22, 25, first able to start carrying, uh, you know, we were, I was in the military at the time. We were going out to bars. We were raising hell. We were having fun. Uh, but I found myself even then, probably without even consciously thinking about it, but I found myself then 
avoiding situations because I was carrying a gun, not the other way around. You know, you get in a argument over whether you touched the five ball when you were striking the cue ball shooting pool or something, you know, just dumb, dumb shit like that. And now you're in a, you're in a shoving match. Now you're in a wrestling match. Now you're on the ground, concealed carry or, you know, your gun falls out. The guy sees it, he grabs it. it or, or maybe he just starts beating your ass to the pool cue and you feel compelled to shoot him at that point. You know, that's just silly. None of that would have happened uh, had you not been the aggressor. And that's, that's the, the case in all of these scenarios that the guys using stand your ground to defend their actions uh, were the aggressor in all cases. And uh, I just contend that, you know, had they not been carrying that gun, they wouldn't have felt like Billy Badass and they wouldn't have been so tough to go in there and make that aggression. So it's, again, it's not politics. I'm not against, uh, not against the law for sure. Quite the opposite. I'm hundred percent for it, but it's just sad that in, in my opinion it's being used in the wrong in the wrong context you know the the aggressor guy you can't go up and and uh throat punch some guy some guy and then when he goes to defend himself and knocks you down you draw a gun and shoot him and say i was standing my ground you know i don't i don't think it should work that way but uh politics aside just think about that if you're a concealed carry holder and you're out there on your day-to-day life you know you need to be avoiding situations going out of your way swallowing your pride uh, to avoid situations. Some guy's texting in a theater and that bothers you. Get up and leave, man. It's it's uh, 18 bucks or whatever. Because <laughs> it's expensive. But to see a movie. you know, Go to another theater. Go, go somewhere else. Some dude's parking in a handicapped spot. Who gives a shit? Go in there, buy your yingling, and, and go home and, and watch Frozen or something. So uh, just, just something to think about. On that note, another little tidbit of info for you. I got pulled over the other day. I was on the way to work. It was early in the morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock, and I was coming through our town of uh, Frostproof on the way to the range, which is, a, if you haven't been there, it's a very, very small town. And as you're, you're coming off a, a uh, highway, I guess, or a, a, a Route 27, I guess it's called highway. So you're, you're coming in rolling 75, and when you turn off to the head through town, it's 55 and then it drops to 45 and then 35 pretty quick within the span of half a mile or so it drops down. So I'm mean, I drive that every day. You know, I don't, I'm not a, I don't speed anyway. I've, uh, I just got a new truck, but my other truck was 300,000 miles and 14 years old. So I tend to baby my baby, my vehicles. And, uh, so I'm, I'm coming through it. There's a cop sitting on the side of the road and it's just, a, again, small town, small road. I didn't think anything of it. I drive by, he pulls in, pulls out, and jumps in behind me. Still didn't think, didn't think anything of it. There's a stoplight there, so we're, we're stopping at the stoplight. I look at my rearview mirror, and he's on his radio behind me. I'm like, I oh, must be ordering lunch or something. And, but apparently he was running my tags. And then when the light turned green and I pulled off, he, he hit his lights. There's a little Dollar General store there. I pulled off. So here, here's the weird thing. Uh, occasionally over the last couple of years, uh, occasionally on an hourly basis, I've been chewing tobacco, which I'm quitting on Monday. So that, that's a good news. And don't tell my wife because she doesn't listen to my podcast. But the issue here is a couple of things. So I have a, uh, I had a, a beer bottle, a yingling bottle in the center console that I was spitting in from the night before. Not even I was drinking at 730 in the morning on the way to work, believe it or not. But that was the first thing that I thought about. Oh, shit, there's a beer bottle here in the center console <clears throat> or in the cup holder or whatever. 
so I'm trying to find a place to stash that. And as I mentioned, I got a new truck. And I've, I've always had a truck gun for as far back as I can remember. Uh, but this new truck, it's got all this uh, newfangled technology everywhere on the dashboard and the, underneath the, underneath the uh, steering wheel, underneath the steering column. And I haven't found a good spot to mount my truck gun yet. I got some ideas, but I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, so for the time being, it's just sitting uh, in the center. I call this center console, but it's not the spot where you open it up and put stuff in. It's just out there by the gear shifter and the cup holders, and it's just sitting there. Uh, the truck's black inside. All the all the um, trim is black, and it's tinted window, so you, and it's a black gun, so you can't even really honestly see it. But truth be told, I forgot. I totally forgot it was sitting there, and it's not in a holster. It was just sitting there, which is not legal by Florida law, it's got to be uh, in something. You can have a gun laying out, but it's got to be in a holster or a bag or cigar box or, or whatever. <clears throat> and I 100% forgot about it. And that's just kind of a complacency thing. You know, when you carry something every day and you have for 20 years, you don't even think about it being there. Uh, so he, he comes up and I always roll all the windows down because all my windows are tinted and you can't see in. Uh, so I always roll the, all the windows down to give them the, the always in the, the six times I've been pulled over in the last 10 years. Uh, but to give them a you know, sense of ease in this so they can see in when they're, when they're walking up. Uh, young guy. So it turns out that they've got some young, young, young in terms of time on the forest cops in that area. And it's actually the county that, that, that patrols for the, for the city of Frost Roof. They don't have their own police force. So I guess they got some new guys in and they're just kind of making a show of force and, and doing their thing. So it's super nice. And again, I just got this truck. Of course, it's been two months now, but I still haven't figured out where everything is in there. And he asked for my uh, registration. And so I told him, I said, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's in the glove box, but honestly, I just got this truck and I can't even swear that it's in there. But I was explaining to him that I was going to reach to the glove box. I said, I think it's in the glove box. It's okay if I reach over there and open the glove box because that's... You know, that's, that's the way I do it. I respect these guys and what they deal with every day, and uh, I don't want to be making jerky movements. And uh, he said, yeah, no problem. You don't have any guns in there, do you? And that's when it hit me. I was like, holy shit. I'm like halfway leaning across right now, and there's a gun sitting in the, con in the center console area, you know, six inches from my hand, and I totally forgot about it. So I sat back up, put my hands on the wheel. I was like, oh, yeah, I do. Actually, I told him I worked at Universal Shooting Academy, and and uh, so he said, do you have, I'd already given him, my, I'd already given him my license at this point. And he said, do you have a concealed carry permit? I said, yes, sir. He grabbed it out, handed it to him. And he said, where is it? I said, uh, it's in the center console. And that's not what I meant to say, but that's what I said. And he probably thought that I meant that it was in the center console, which is exactly what I said, which is why he probably thought that, but that's not where it was. But again, it's so dark in there that you just really couldn't see. And uh, again, super cool. He said, hey, no problem, man. You, you keep yours in your holster, and I'll keep mine in my holster. Deal? I said, deal. So I reached over, and by that time, he said, uh, he says, it registered to you, the truck? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, I can, I can check on your license. And he walked off. So it gave me a little, little time. I, number one, could finish reaching the glove box and actually get my registration, which I had. And then... I checked my mirror to make sure he was sitting back in the in the car, and so I can grab that gun and throw it in the actual center console where I said it was the whole time. 
Uh, but it was just a little little eye opener for me, like complacency, man. Complacency kills in in a lot of regards, not only literally killing, but in just terms of getting in trouble and, and doing stupid stuff. So uh, I'll have it uh, I'll have it properly mounted in the future. But also, you know, you make one mistake and hopefully you don't make it again. I will uh, I will not do that one again. I'll, I'll remember where the guns are next time. I hope. I was going to get into the Ipsic Nationals. We had the U.S. IPSC National Championship. Uh, weekend before last here, the last podcast, we had Dan Bernard on, buddy of mine. We covered the differences, some differences in the rules, and, and basically just our general opinion of what we think uh, of USPSA versus IPSC, and not that it's one versus the other, but just as a USPSA guy, uh, which I am and Dan is, kind of what our opinions are. Um, on the differences in the rules. So if you didn't, if you didn't hear that podcast, it was a pretty good one. Back up one and listen to that. I'm going to cover the match as a whole from a uh, a two hatted approach. So I was the match director and also a competitor. So this is a qualifier match uh, for the team selection to the next world shoot, which will be in 2020 in Thailand, and kind of on the fence about trying out for the team again. I uh, made the open team last year, and I was pretty proud to make that open team, uh, coming from being primarily a limited guy over the uh, many, many years before that, uh, and especially against the guys I'm going against. Me and my teammates are outstanding competitors. They're way younger than me and, and way faster than me, and uh, you know, having the ability to, to hang in there and make the team. I didn't show as well as I wanted, but we accomplished a lot of goals. I mean, the team won the gold medal, and um, I didn't finish last. I did embarrass myself too, too, too bad, although I did embarrass myself. Uh, so I, I met a lot of goals. And I was thinking, man, next time around, dude, you're going to be 47. Is this, is this a pipe dream, or can you make the team again? And I'm still not sure uh, what I'm doing, but the match was here. I had to shoot something, so I was like, well, you know, fuck it, let's shoot open and, and see what happens. Uh, I've been kind of chilling for the last number of months, honestly. Um, focusing a little bit more on three-gun this year. And with the, with the train up to the world shoot, again, the, the last world shoot, I kind of had the mentality that like this might be the last hurrah for being on the team. <clears throat> so I, I hit it pretty hard. Uh, training hard, shooting a, shooting a ton, a ton. And so after that, I kind of chilled out a bit. I uh, shot a lot of PCC, which I really enjoyed. I uh, started messing with 3-Gun, which is uh, which I'm enjoying. And haven't really spent much time behind the open gun. So I, I didn't feel super prepared for this match. I certainly didn't have a lot of practice in. But guns were running good. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just go out there, shoot my dot, <clears throat> and see what happens. I was, as match director, I shot with the staff on staff day. Which, you know, I know everybody out there thinks I'm out there practicing on the stages for five days prior to the match, but I have an open offer for the Thursday a week prior, not the Thursday before the match, the Thursday a week prior. You know, anybody that wants to come in and hang with me up until the match is more than welcome to do so. Uh, the caveat is you have to do everything I do. That includes emptying the trash, carrying steel, hammering nails, building walls, painting targets, and all that stuff. So it's an open offer. It's a standing offer. Anybody, anytime wants to come, they're more than welcome. 
you can see what goes on in the week leading up to a match. Uh, I did get out a couple of mornings just to test the gears, zero the gun. You know, I got a couple hundred rounds down each day, make sure everything was working well. Uh, but then the other other side of the, the coin is you have you know, have to shoot on staff day. We shot 16 stages in one day, and I'm um, I was uh, match director, but also Mister running the Mister Fixer role. So you're getting pulled out to fix this and fix that and make this call here and make this judgment there and that type of thing. So I jump in with a squad, pick up a stage here and there, jump in with another squad, pick up a stage, jump back in with my squad, pick up a stage, and you know do it a can. Like hopefully it doesn't come off like I'm complaining because I'm not. You know I enjoy my job. I'm lucky, <clears throat> lucky to be able to do what I do. But it's a, it, there are tough conditions to be able to compete with the best in the world on. Yeah, and that's there's no doubt about that. It's definitely a, dis- a disadvantage. Uh, so I finished. I finished the match. I, I actually felt I shot pretty good. I mean, under the circumstances, I felt I shot pretty well. I figured I was probably off the pace uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I haven't hadn't been behind the open gun for a while consistently. Uh, I wasn't shooting with my competition, so you never really know. Like, it's a different feel when you're shooting with the best in the world versus shooting by yourself. Uh, so I didn't really have that feel. Uh, and then I shot the match clean, which you know I'm not a big fan of the statement, if you shoot all A's, you're shooting too slow. I don't think that's true at all. But I did kind of have a feel like, you know, if I'm clean on this match, um, I was probably off the pace. But nonetheless, I shot clean. So I wasn't upset about my performance. Uh, I felt it was uh, I felt it was pretty solid. So then the match kicked off, and it was pretty much all over about the crying at that point. There's not much I could do then. My match was done. Uh, my score looked pretty solid before all the pros started shooting. Uh, but once they started rolling in, there was nothing I could do at that point but uh, but watch. So I had KC. I had a lot of good open shooters, actually. Uh, KC and JJ and um, a lot of good competition across all divisions because it was a, a, a qualifier match for the world shoot teams. Um Focusing on open because it's all about me. Uh, but Casey and JJ both shot really well, uh, and JJ shot fantastic. I, I got to see him shoot a couple of stages, uh, not a lot, but Phil Strader was was with him, and he said he was shooting near flawless. And once Phil said that, you know, coming from him, I was like, eh, nobody's going to beat that man. I mean, if anybody, if any of these guys, any of these pro shooters, uh, if somebody knowledgeable watching them says he's shooting near flawless. That's going to be tough to beat, you know, no matter who you are. And that's kind of the way it goes. You know, there's, there's, there was probably five guys at this match, or or maybe more, that uh, that could have won it. And that's that's the case at pretty much every major. You know, your big majors, when all the pros are coming out, you're going to have, you know, five, six, eight guys that could win. And similar to golf, you know, same thing there. There's there's five, six, eight guys that could that are going to win a major. Uh, and it just kind of comes down to who's putting it together that weekend, those those three days, those two days, whatever it is, you know, who's who's having their having their day. And uh, it was JJ's day on this match. So he shot super solid and, and pulled out the victory. So good for him. And Casey finished second, and I finished third. So it was a, it was a good score for me. And, and honestly, that's probably where I belong. Those guys are are better than I am. And. Uh, there's a lot of other guys, a lot of other guys in the match that could have beat me as well. 
so that was that gave me some confidence. I feel like I shot where I belonged and uh, put up a good score. They worked the percentage as your score for team selections. Uh, I put up a decent percentage. And uh, we'll see. And they'll carry over. We have nationals coming up in October. I'll shoot open there. So who knows? Maybe the old gal, old gal make the team again. From a uh, for the other other hat for the weekend was my match director hat, and man, I couldn't be more proud of my team for this match. I don't know if if uh, five six years in of running matches for a living, if I'm getting better at it, uh, or if I'm just putting a good better team together. But this is one of the one of the best matches I've ever run in my opinion, uh, in terms of the back side of the house, the logistics side of the house and the flow and the, the problems or, or controversies or issues or there was just very, very, very little uh, of anything. And we were a little bit short staffed, which is another conversation, but for various reasons. But I had, uh, you know, I kind of put a call out for help and had some good friends jump in last minute and, and offer to help out which gave us the, the minimum, but gave us the number of staff we needed. We had some international ROs in town from around the world for the IPSC match, and it was great to have that, that, uh, that flavor there, that influence in the match. And, you know, I maybe had three, four calls for fix-it crap, a couple of talk calls for match director crap, but not, not much, man. The, the, least, the least hassle going on, of any match I ever remember, ever remember running. And, uh, you know, I attribute that to the team. You know, I've got some great, great friends. I've talked about this either on this podcast or another, I forget, but the guy was asking about how, how you get staff for matches. And, and I don't know the answer to that. It's just these, the, in, in almost, almost all accounts, these people are good personal friends of mine. You know, I've been shooting for in just in Florida for 18 years. So I've got a pretty good uh, contact base around here. We've got a strong shooting community in Florida. Um, this particular match, we had my buddy Trent running stats, and he's an IT wizard. So he, I'm sure there's problems, but he doesn't tell me about them because he knows I'll freak out. So he, he, you know, he knows how to work with me, and he just handles shit. Uh, Troy McManus came down from USPSA, worked as range master. Obviously, he knows what he's doing. Uh, Pre-match, I had my buddy Dave Jenkins with helping with stage design and stage build. And then uh, RO crew, great RO crew that I've worked with for many, many years. And most of them, a couple of new guys, which did awesome. But the bulk of the crew have worked with me for a long time. And we all just work well together, man. You know, people know, know when to come to me with stuff and they know when to leave me alone with stuff. And I got people that can handle things, and that's that's what it comes down to when you're running an event like this. Is you need folks that can make a decision, and in many cases, you know, I don't even really care if it's a wrong decision. Just make a decision, roll with it, be confident, and let's get to shooting. Uh, so huge, huge thanks to the the team uh, for running you know, one of the one of the best one of the best big matches that I've I've ever been a part of. So it's a lot of good friends making me look good. Uh, a couple minutes. So a couple questions I'll I'll try to hit on. These came in on Facebook. Uh, this one, I'll read the question. Uh, do you have any tips <clears throat> on shooting sectionals or bigger matches in one day? 
I know it's not ideal, but this is the schedule that I'm stuck with. <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know about tips, but I, I will say this. I, I used to always prefer the two-day schedule. And when I say used to, that's when I talk about my come-up years when I was, um, you know, shooting up, shooting a lot more matches than I am now. Um, but hmm, the word I'm looking for is I've been self-employed for 20 years, um, but I've never shot less than when I became a shooting professional, which is kind of the way it goes, you know. So I shoot less now, and. You know, time time became more of a premium, and then in the last year and a half, or you know, three four years, I've got married. In the last year and a half, we had a kid, so that that brings time even more to a premium. But back in the day, 10, 15 years ago, you know, it was it was still a hobby, although I was working hard at it, but it was still a hobby. So I kind of had the mentality like, hey, this is my weekend. I want to go out have a good weekend, shoot, shoot over two days, you know, stay a couple nights in a hotel, have dinner with the guys, have some drinks, have a good time, shoot some stuff, come back on Sunday or Monday and then get back to work. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, with that system. When I started to get busier, started to look at more of the, the one day schedule type stuff. Uh, I think I kind of like that better now. And you know, partially because I have to do it, so I don't really have a choice, similar to, I'm guessing, the reason you asked this question. Uh, but there's a couple of theories on that. Number one, I mean, you got to be in decent shape, um, you know, mentally and, and physically, and you got to hydrate, and depending on where you're shooting, uh, climate-wise, shooting a match in one day can be tough. It can be, it can be a physically demanding uh, setup. But if you're in reasonably good shape, you're you're eating well. You've you're hydrated. Not that big a deal. Um, the biggest problem is the mental focus. So, for example, back to the story I just talked about earlier, the Ipsic Nationals. You know, 16 stages in one day, and we moved pretty quick. We had small squads, so we were able to move quick. Uh, I didn't, and I was even quicker because I didn't actually get to shoot until most of the squads were three three or four stages in. Uh, just because stuff was coming up, you know, just kicking off stages first time. There were questions and some things we had to fix and whatever. Just for various reasons, I didn't get started for a while. So I had to jam my stuff in even more, uh, trying to jump from squad to squad to pick up the stages that I missed and some shit like that. Uh, but in a, in, a, in a normal sense, uh, recently, recently being the last couple of years, I've been preferring the one-day schedule anyway. But the biggest, deal, the biggest deal is the mental focus that I found. Towards the end of the day, especially if it's hot, uh, it's really easy to lose your mental focus. You get tired, you get hungry, you get thirsty. Uh, you just you just blah out, man, and it's like you, you, you lose that sharpness. That's what you got to fight. So if you're going to make the habit of shooting big matches in one day because you have to because of your schedule... You've really got to stay in the fight towards the end. Uh, so again, back to make sure you're hydrated and, and eating uh, some high energy type stuff uh, so you're ready to rock. But I don't really think it's a negative, honestly. And I don't for me. Uh, I don't look at it as a bad thing. And then the other, the other way to look at it is uh, if you're shooting good, awesome. You know, keep on rolling. Let's get let's get let's get this thing done. And if you're shooting bad, well. 
fuck it, it'll be over with soon, and I'm going home. So that's that's the other way to look at it to to keep your spirits up. Uh, another question. Uh, I have a question for your podcast. I shoot open and have for the last two years. I'm point eight six percent away from making master. And I've noticed lately that I'm having trouble with the first couple of stages of a match having poor performances. But after the first couple of stages, I settle in and tend to shoot a lot better. Is there a way I can prevent this? Well, without without knowing you, I would say uh, you're talking to the master on this one because I have I suffered this problem and probably still do uh, for a long time. And I think it's just nerves. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about what level of match. So I don't know if this means local matches too, or if we're just talking majors, but, uh, this happened to me at the nationals for years, for years. So I, I would, I would shit the bed on the first stage or two, and then I would shoot great the rest of the match, like, like shooting with the best in the world, uh, the rest of the match. And this is 10 years ago. And that went on for a long, long time. And I don't know when I figured it out, but you know, the, the deal is you have this, all this, I mean, all, all pressure is self-induced, right? All pressure is self-induced. So you have this pressure for performance that you're putting on yourself. And when you come out of the gate and you dick up a couple of stages, you think, well, I just tossed this match down the shitter, so screw it. And then boom, that pressure is lifted off your shoulders and you shoot to your potential for the rest of the day, the rest of the match. Uh, because you, you no longer have that pressure because you think you're out of it. Where before the match starts, you think you're poised to win the thing and that pressure builds up on you. Uh, to answer your question, is there a way I can prevent this? Uh, no. <laughs> and when I've, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole here because we're running long on time, but the one of the things I talk about in my class is learning to shoot is a thing. Like learning the fundamentals of marksmanship, mechanics of making the shot, running the gun, all that's a thing. Learning to compete is another thing, totally separate. And you cannot practice competing, in my opinion. Yeah, you can play games with yourself, you can play games with your training partner. Uh, some stuff like that that will build some sense of pressure. But I've not found it anything like going out and competing. And then there's levels of competition. I'm sure some people get nervous at, at club matches. Um, uh, sectional level matches, state level matches, area level matches, national level matches, and international level matches. At some point, you're going to reach that potential where you're nervous. And the only thing I've noticed is that the more experience you have at that level, the less nervous you are. So if you've shot one state championship in your life, well, you're probably pretty nervous. If you've shot 40, probably not so much. So now you go up a level. How many area championships? All right, go up a level. How many nationals? How many world, how many world championships? Uh, so I've definitely felt that throughout my career that um, that uh, I call it the juice. And 
there's butterflies, that nervousness you feel at the beginning of the match, the first stage or two. Uh, I call it the juice. And, you know, if you're not feeling the juice, eh, I don't know if that we would do this game anymore. You know, I mean, that's part of why we do it. If you don't feel that, then just go out and shoot bullseye or, or punch holes in paper or shoot cans or, you know, whatever. We're doing it for that competitive aspect, for that adrenaline, for that juice. Uh, but I've noticed that when you step up a level, you feel more juice until you have a number of matches under your belt at that level. And then it lessens. Oh, you're always going to feel something. I always feel something. Again, if you didn't, why would we do it? But then the next level. So I've got, uh, I don't know, I shot my first nationals, probably oh, four, five, six, something like that. You know, so I've got, and I've shot pretty much every one. So I don't know, 30, 40, 50 nationals under my belt now. Um, and then tons of matches under their area and, and state level stuff. So I certainly feel the juice at those levels, but nothing like I did, man. Nothing like I did. But if you want to scroll back and listen to my World Shoot podcast from last year, I certainly felt the juice there. And it's because I've only got a couple of World Shoots under my belt. Uh, you know, I've technically shot three, but the one we had with that we hosted at our place, I don't count because I was not a, you know, I shot the match, but I wasn't a competitor. I was, I was running the thing. Uh, but this one in France that we just had, uh, same thing. I, I felt the juice hard. I, I prepared hard. I put tons and tons of pressure on myself, being on the team and not screwing up, and and I uh, did really, really bad on the second stage of the match. Uh, two misses, and and then the rest of the match I shot okay. I, n- I never really shot great. Uh, the second day, I, I got back on track a little bit, but then had some problems at the end uh, that I don't think were related to the juice, but nonetheless, they happened. And then the third day, I, or subsequent after that, the, the subsequent three days, uh, I shot pretty, I shot pretty well, I shot okay. But by that point, I was out of it. You know, I'd, I'd made a couple of, of very large mistakes that I wasn't going to be able to dig myself out of, which was the same pattern as like you're talking about. And so I, now I feel all of a sudden like, well, you dig that one up, Smitty. You're out now. Boom, pressure's gone, and you can shoot well. Uh, so to answer your question again, is a way to prevent it? Uh, yeah, but not nothing you're gonna you're gonna think about or type about or or do squats about. You know, you're gonna have to get out there and compete as much as you can, and uh, it'll it'll I think be less and less. It's always gonna be there, but you'll learn how to deal with it. You'll learn how to shoot with it. You'll learn how to drive with the fear if you're a ricky bobby fan and uh, it's just experience man you, you can't buy experience you got to earn it so i hope that answers your question appreciate appreciate you guys for joining me i will uh, try to be back with you more often than not check out my youtube channel which is also shannon smith shooting on youtube i've been a little little neglecting on that but i'm going to try to start getting more more videos up on there because i know they're easier to share around and and uh, spread around easier than facebook So check me out there. Hit me up with the questions, Facebook page or email. Hope you guys are having a good summer. See you on the range.